I still question whether or not God called me into church planting, even after having done it a couple of times. It, it's, uh, I think, the most um, rigorous and, and also the most formative um, uh, experience that, that, that anybody can have in the kingdom of God is just to go through the faith-stretching uh, journey of uh, and adventure of, of starting new churches. And so I have a special affection for uh, those who populate uh, crowds such as this one, especially those that are praying together around tables, across networks, across denominations, across um, you know, ethnicities, across different areas of town uh, with the common dream and vision and the shared dream and vision together to reach a city not caring who gets the credit uh, uh, and uh, realizing that there's only one uh, pedestal, uh, one rightful pedestal in Houston or any other city in the world, and that's the one that Jesus Christ is seated on. And uh, that's what I'm here to talk to you about, that, um, that human pedestals are, um, are dangerous, uh, human pedestals are foolish, uh, uh, human pedestals that, um, that lead to the, the sad, sad scenario of us beginning to enjoy the sound of our own name more than we enjoy the sound of Jesus' name uh, is something that needs to be um, uh, aggressively avoided and fought against. Um, <clears throat> the book that, uh, that, that Bruce uh, alluded to, From Weakness to Strength, is a book for leaders. Uh, it's primarily targeted toward pa uh, pastors, but it's written in such a way that, 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 that it really is for any Christian leading anything from a household all the way to an organization, a large organization. But the reason why I wrote the book was uh, for myself, um, interestingly. And um, uh, I should actually say I wrote it to myself because uh, over the span of 18 months, five of my friends uh, who uh, essentially had three things in common uh, over the course of 18 months, um, I discovered that, that these five friends, each of whom had been a church planter, each of whom had then developed into the pastor of a mega church uh, and became a Christian celebrity and part of the American industrial Christian celebrity complex, uh, book deals and, and uh, speaking engagements and conference gigs and green rooms and all of those things, not that there's anything wrong with any of those things by themselves, but the third thing that all of them had in common was that, that their character collapsed, they abused their power, uh, having become uh, essentially isolated with, with a whole lot of fans and admirers and followers, but no friends, and, um, and they lost their ministries. And, um, and so I wrote the book because these are all people who have profoundly impacted me uh, as faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And um, every one of them had something about not only their ministry efforts, but their character that I wanted to emulate. And so it scared me. Um, how could this happen to five people that I know in, in just a year and a half? And and so what I did was I just sat down and, and sort of jotted down the, the various areas that I'm aware of, uh, that I'm vulnerable, and that's the scary part, that a lot of our vulnerabilities we're not even aware of, um, which is why David you know, prays, Lord, forgive me for my hidden faults. 
Um, but I came up with eight that I'm personally susceptible to and you know, might you know, become a common thread for, for, for others who are trying to follow the Lord faithfully and for whatever reason have been given um, this perilous privilege called platform. Uh, and so those vulnerabilities include um, self-exalting ambition, isolation relationally, uh, criticism and how we deal with criticism, uh, the issue of envy, uh, insecurity, anticlimactic experience when goals and visions and dreams aren't met, uh, the experience of opposition and the experience of suffering. Uh, these, these are all Achilles heels for me. I don't just have one Achilles heel. I have at least eight that I know of. And so, um, so these are all just sort of reflections uh, on those, those Achilles heels. But, but, but out of what I observed um, you know, in my friends' uh, experiences and in their you know, recovery processes, those who are seeking recovery, others tragically have not sought recovery with the Lord or with community. Some are, some aren't. Um, I've discovered, at least personally, um, what I believe to be this, what, what I'm calling today the secret weapon of fruitful leadership. And it's right there in one of the Beatitudes where Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for it's the meek that will inherit the earth. It's the meek who will end up winning. Um, there is an imbalance, I think, in the American West um, where we are, uh, we're accustomed to, um, to language and ways of thinking and a certain kind of air that we breathe as leaders that is actually not um, all that congruent with the kingdom of God and, and the way that Jesus says that his followers will lead. Um, you know, Jesus is both a lion and a lamb, right? And in our part of the world, at least, and in our time in history, um, we're all aspiring to be the lion. We're all aspiring to, to win, to be on top, to come in first to compete well, but um, it's a very rare leader who really, when it comes down to it, the people who work the closest with that leader or live the closest to that leader would describe lamb-like qualities. And Jesus is equally both. He's the king of the universe, and he is the child who was born in a manger in a small Middle Eastern uh, obscure town, had refugee status for a period of his younger life, and was despised and rejected and thrown outside of the temple, thrown outside of, of the city, uh, executed in the most humiliating of ways in his time, and through that, is still winning the world. While Jesus Christ is by no means anti-American because we were included when he said, go to the ends of the earth. We're not the center of the Christian story. We never have been, we never will be. We're on the periphery and yet we are just as beloved as Peter, James and John. 
and Mary and Martha and the others. But it's helpful sometimes to know your place. Um, it's dangerous to walk into a, a board meeting. It's dangerous to walk into a pulpit with a swag instead of a limp. And our Americanness teaches us to do things with a swag. And that's the most toxic thing that we can offer people that God has entrusted to us for leadership. He wants lamb-like lions and lion-like lambs. Jesus was un-American to the core, so, but not anti-American. So I want to read um, just a brief excerpt to describe or, or to explain that statement, and then I've got a few thoughts that I'll share with you after that. Jesus offers a radically different understanding of what it means to be a leader. His vision for leadership often parts ways with the typical American view of such things. For example, in America, credentials qualify a person to lead. In Jesus, the chief qualification is character. In America, what matters most are the results that we produce. In Jesus, what matters most is the kind of people that we are becoming. In America, success is measured by material accumulation, power, and the positions that we hold. In Jesus, success is measured by material generosity, humility, and the people whom we serve. In America, it is shameful to come in last and laudable to come in first. In Jesus, the first will be last and the last will be first. In America, leaders make a name for themselves to become famous and sometimes treat Jesus as a means to that end. In Jesus, leaders make his name famous and treat their own positions, abilities, and influence as a means to that end. In America, leaders crave recognition and credit. In Jesus, leaders think less of themselves and give credit to others. In America, leaders compare and compete so they will flourish. In Jesus, leaders sacrifice and serve so others will flourish. In America, leadership often means my glory and happiness at your expense. In Jesus, leadership always means your growth and wholeness at my expense. In America, the strong and powerful rise to the top. And in Jesus, the meek inherit the earth. So um, there's a clash of ideals here um, between what we could call the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, or as St. Augustine called the city of man and the city of God. Um, American life and perspective is, uh, I think, more shaped by, um, by Nietzsche's um, concept of the, the ubermensch, the superman, the, the will to power, the, the, the drive to, to dominance. We're very, very shaped. We're so shaped by it that we don't even recognize it. We don't even recognize when we're the ones who have the power. We often don't even know how much power that we have until it's threatened, and then, and then we fight and get offended and so on. Um, you know, my friend uh, John Tyson, here's a book that I would recommend that you read uh, more than I would recommend that you read this one. Uh, uh, John is a pastor in New York City, and um, uh, he, he came out with a book recently called The Burden is Light. Um, very, very important um, concepts for... Uh, for people who are leading uh, and, and trying to make a difference in the world. But one of the observations that John makes, he's an Australian, so he's a little bit of, he's a little bit of a, an outsider insider, and so he's able to look at, at the United States from the outside. 
And he says, have you ever noticed how violent the American language is around the concept of success? When we've succeeded, we've crushed it. We've killed it, nailed it. And, you know, as I heard him, you know, giving these examples, it, it dawned on me that Christ came in the opposite way. Christ came and got crushed. And, and, and he came and got killed. And he came and, and got nails, you know, driven, you know, through his, through his hands and feet. And, and that's where the power happened. You know, the, 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 the most um, incredibly weak moment in Jesus' life was the most powerful. I mean, we talk about the resurrection. The resurrection, incredible power. Easter Sunday, incredible power, but there was just as much power and fortitude happening on the cross through the restraint that the one who created the galaxies by breathing and could have done anything in that moment that he chose to. I mean, just think about how much restraint and, and inner fortitude and power that it takes to say no to retaliation and yes to re redemption, to, to say to a man who was just moments before mocking him, today you're going to be with me in paradise, to say of the people who were you know, shoving vinegar in his mouth and, and, and making fun of him and calling down curses on him and spitting in his face after, you know, after whacking him in the back with whips that had you know, shards of bone uh, attached to the end on a rock. For however many hours the flogging took and his impulses to pray, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. It's as if he was saying, Father, you and I know that hurting people are the ones who hurt people. Father, you and I know that behind every kind of sin, even every act of bullying, like, like what's happening right now, every kind of abuse of power, behind that, is a small little man trying to find his place in this world. And so, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. That, I think, was just as powerful of a moment for Jesus as coming up from the dead and of saying, let there be, and there was. So there's a, a prayer around this whole concept of the power of God being made perfect in weakness that kind of developed over those 18 months for me personally as, as I reflected on, on my five friends. By the way, I've had three more collapse in the same way since that time. So be careful. If you want to be my friend, be careful. <laughs> I might have that kind of effect on you. But the prayer is this. You know, God always... Give me character that is greater than my gifts and abilities and always give me humility that is greater than my platform and influence. Either by increasing my character and humility or by decreasing my gifts, abilities, and platform and influence. Whatever it takes, keep character and humility ahead of accomplishment. So there's the problem of pride, I think, that, that, that fuels the American spirit, which it, or the Nietzschean spirit. It's really not American and Nietzschean. It's, it's the human spirit since the Garden of Eden, since you know, man and woman decided to go independent. 
to go on an entrepreneurial endeavor, uh, to go on a risk venture, apart from their provider and creator. It's the problem of pride. It goes like this. You want to understand the psychology of a bully? You want to understand the emotional construct of a bully? It's this. It's right there in Shrek, uh, in Lord Farquaad. Remember that speech he gave before the gladiators fought to the death for the right to go find, uh, you know, fight the dragon to, to get Farquaad's wife while Farquaad sat in the castle playing video games? And, you know, Farquaad says, some of you will die, but that's a price I'm willing to pay, you know, as if that's a valiant thing. You know, the narcissism can be, you know, so self-blinding, can it, of a leader with a lot of followers and fans and likes and retweets, but no friends. So Shrek and Donkey are standing at the foot of Farquaad's castle, and it's this enormous structure, a lot like some of the houses right down the street here, maybe, maybe even a little bit bigger than some of the Houston houses right down the street here. It's amazing how big these houses are. Um, and this is not a comment on, on, on Houston people, this is a comment on Farquaad. <laughs> Farquaad's tower was bigger. Solomon lived in a big house, that's, that's great. Um, God blessed it, Solomon and all of his splendor, Jesus affirmed it. Job was the richest man in the world. So this, this, isn't, about, this isn't about that, there's no passive aggression behind this statement. He's standing with Donkey at Farquaad's tower, and, and Donkey says, oh, wh what a huge tower. How impressive this tower is, you know? And, you know, Donkey's like the, you know, the Enneagram, the com combination of, of like the festive, um, the festive seven and the, uh, the people-pleasing nine, and, and Shrek is, you know, just kind of the grumpy Gus, probably a number four if you're an Enneagram person, uh, but an unhealthy four because healthy fours aren't like this. And so Shrek, Shrek just looks up and in his customary grumpy way says, looks like somebody's compensating for something. And that's precisely what bullying is. That's precisely what aggression is. That's precisely what any initiative to be the one who is large and in charge and sitting in the first seat, no matter what it takes, what is behind that is a small little man trying to find his way through the world that scares him. You see it in Philippians 2 when Paul talks about this concept called vain conceit. The, the, the Greek terminology there is kinodoxa, which literally means empty of glory. Being empty of glory is, is the thing that, that, that compels us to want to seek glory in all the wrong places. It's an emotional neediness that, 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 that craves attention and applause and recognition from finite sources, i.e. from our fellow human beings. And through that, we become defensive, we become self-protective, we, be we become unteachable, we become whatever we need to do in order to shield ourselves from feeling small. This is our need to be a big deal, for, for our need for bigger, for better. And that's what Israel was asking for when, when they rejected the Lord as king. They said, we want a king like, like the Canaanite nations. We want a king like everybody else, one that we can see and touch, and we want him. And why did they want Saul to be their king? Here's the description, because his head was above all the rest. He, he, he'd had some victories in battle, and he was big. Like he was ripped and tall and, and, and strong. 
But we find out as the Saul story unfolds, and I'll get back to that in just a second, but as that story unfolds, we find that he's just a little tiny man trapped in a big old muscular body. And he does a lot of damage as a result. Tom Arnold is a comedian. I love to give, uh, I love to, I love to tell this one. Um, you know, Tom Arnold did an interview around his, his book, uh, How I Lost Five Pounds in Six Years. <laughs> and the question that was asked to him by an interviewer was, why did you write the book? And listen to his answer to why he wrote the book. Lots of us in entertainment, insert for entertainment ministry. Lots of us in entertainment are broken people looking for validation. The reason I wrote the book is so I'd have something out there so people would say that they like me. It's the reason behind almost everything I do. Can I get a witness? You relate to that? I really relate to that. I mean, one of the reasons why I'm so drawn, uh, if you haven't figured it out right now, I'm a three on the Enneagram, the amb ambitious person, the the one who wants to take a hill, the workaholic, the achiever. It's so relatable what, what Tom Arnold is, is saying here. And, and, and there's actually a beautiful aspect to this, this desire for approval as well, because we are created in the image of God, right? And, and what is the, essentially the, the, the purpose for being God? It's to be glorified and enjoyed, right? You know, the, our confessions, you know, in our particular tradition of, of, of the Christian faith say that, that the chief end of a human being, the chief purpose of a human being is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And, 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 and so if God, in whose likeness we have been created, desires to be glorified and enjoyed, it, it, it actually is a pure desire that we have. There's nothing wrong or immoral or strange or weird or, or freakish or sinful or broken about desiring praise and affirmation. I mean, we're all after the well done and good, for, good and faithful servant, right? But here's the great thing. It's already been pronounced over us. Our judgment day has been moved from the future to the past. And so we have the well done. It's already been spoken over us. Our starting point is not run the race to get the award. Our starting point is here's the reward. Now do your very first good thing. In light of that. But we've got this reversed in our hearts and, and we get amnesia about it all the time because we've still got this sort of old man, new man thing going on. We still have the flesh and the spirit, um, you know, sort of at war for our loyalties, at war for our attention, at, at war for our beliefs. For now, that's the way it works. But for, for, for King Saul, who was just like Jesus Christ, hardwired to be esteemed and applauded and recognized. When we esteemed Jesus not, he gave his life for us. When, when they esteemed Saul not, or when they esteemed him less than he felt like he should be esteemed, then he wanted his pound of flesh as a result. 
when someone else succeeds, has good fortune, gets recognition, the emotional effect for the King Saul in us is to feel overlooked and injured. You know, remember the, the Goliath event, right? This was, this, was, um, this was a test of leadership for Saul especially. He's the king, head above all the rest, the big shot, the warrior, the guy on the front line, the leader, the general, the king. And into the valley comes a, a, an equally sizable Philistine named Goliath saying, hey, come on. Come on, anybody, come on, put them up. Let, let's, let's fight to the death and whoever wins um, you know, gets, gets the expanded territory and gets to rule and to reign. Whoever loses, too bad, so sad. Give me your best warrior. And Saul runs and hides and he's biting his nails and he's thinking, you know, what, what are we going to do? And, and in comes David, shepherd boy, adolescent, and, you know, the miracle happens, right? With his, with his five smooth stones and slingshot. And he, he, you know, finds the opening in Goliath's armor and, and topples him down in the name of the Lord. And after that, a song starts to be sung. I mean, we all want songs written about us, right? So there was a song. And it went like this. It started like this. Saul has slain his thousands. Now, if I'm a leader and I hear you say that, I'm going to feel pretty good. I feel like, wow, they really appreciate my leadership. They really look up to me. They really think I'm terrific. <laughs> I feel so affirmed. And then the next refrain, you know it. And David has slain his tens of thousands. And, 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 and within the snap of a finger... What was in one moment high praise is all of a sudden a deep insult. And from that point forward, Saul wants to assassinate the person of David in the same way that we want to assassinate the character of the people that we feel threatened by. Because their ministries are a little bit bigger. Um, because we feel insecure because we didn't realize how talented this up-and-comer is that we just hired. And, oh my goodness, they're getting more attention than I thought they would, which is a deflection of attention away from me. You know, the, the whole Groucho Marx thing starts to happen in our hearts, right? You remember that, that skit where he's talking to somebody about himself, and you know, this, is, this and that about me, and up about, this is about me, me, and another thing about me, and, and then he stops himself in a moment of, of, of self-awareness and says, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry, I've been going on and on about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? <laughs> and that's what's going on here with, with King Saul. Isn't it amazing how a praise can immediately turn into an insult? I mean, we fixate on, on whatever it is that feels threatened and, and, and or feels threatening. You know, as we're comparing ourselves to somebody else or to somebody else's ministry. All the while, we're missing all the lovely human beings that God has, has put us into community with. I can't be happy with, you know, with 80 people in my, in my church plant because so-and-so who started a year later than I did has 95 people. And one of them used to be with us. And all I can think about is that one person who left. And all the while, they're, 
there are you know, 80 people who here who completely adore me and are, are, are willing to sacrifice so much to be part of this fledgling thing, and they're all in, and I'm completely ignoring them because I'm just so radically insecure about this one person who decided that you know, this over here was better for their life situation or uh, more congruent with their vision for how they're supposed to serve the kingdom or whatever, and we get so caught up on this one little negative that we miss all of the occasions and reasons for joy that God has put around us. By the way, when you have a 3,000-person church, that dynamic doesn't go away, does it, Bruce? Doesn't at all. You know, there's this uh, statement that the atheist philosopher um, Bertrand Russell made about how, um, I, I can't remember, like if you, you may envy Caesar, but Caesar envied Napoleon, and Napoleon envied, en, envied Hercules, who never existed. I mean, Donald Trump is the most powerful person in the world, and his Twitter feed just shouts envy every single day. You will never get to a place where you have so much power and so much influence and so much praise and so much affirmation that your heart's going to be done with this until you're living out of the well done instead of toward some fictitious well done that doesn't exist for those who are united with Christ. So sixth grade, did y'all have field day when you were in elementary school? That was my favorite day of the I, I was one of those kids who trained for field day. <laughs> and my specialty was the triple jump and the 100-yard dash. And I still remember it. Sixth grade, 100-yard um, dash, this guy named Doug and I tied for first. And we were both going for that blue ribbon, and so the, the teachers you know, had us run the race, just the two of us against each other, we tied again. Then they had us do it again, we tied again. We did it five times, we, we, we tied every single time, and, um, and so neither of us got the sole blue ribbon. I think we both were given you know, one blue ribbon. And that was a point of contention between Doug and I in sixth grade. And so when we'd pass each other in the hallway, there'd be this kind of, yeah, what's up, you know? But there was this rival thing going on, right? And, uh, you know, we graduate. We both go to different middle schools. We don't see each other again for, for a lot of years. And so fast forward to 1996, uh, my wife and I uh, are... Uh, in our living room, we're, we're relatively newly married at the time, we're in our living room, and, um, you know, the, the, I'm, I'm making some popcorn or something, uh, and the Olympics are on, and there's this flashback that happens, and the national anthem, you know what's coming, the national anthem is playing, and I'm like, oh, you know, who, who are they flashing back to? And, and I, I look at the screen, and there is Doug with a gold medal, uh, you know, Olympic gold medal around his, his, his neck from a few years ago. And I'm like, oh, yeah, he did win the gold. I blocked that out of my memory. And uh, I can remember the thought that I had. This was a lot of years later. At least I have a master's degree. 
You know, I got this on him. He doesn't have a master's degree. You know, an inflamed ego is a lot like an inflamed foot. When the ego is injured, it's constantly drawing attention to itself. But when it's not injured, it doesn't think about itself at all. It's not self-referential at all when it's healthy. It's what Tim Keller calls blessed self-forgetfulness. That's not a Tim Keller concept. That's a, that's a gospel concept that Tim Keller popularizes and that we should all be popularizing not only in our teaching but, but in how we believe and in how we conduct our, our lives with this driven and yet rivalry-free spirit that leads to things like cross-denominational, cross-cultural, cross-neighborhood, cross-tribal gatherings where we pray for one another and serve one another and think, who else can we bring into this collaborative, unified effort under our one Lord and one faith and one baptism scenario? You know, the healthy foot does not draw attention to itself. I mean, when's the last time you walked into a staff meeting or, or came home you know, after, after work and said, my feet feel so good today. You don't do that unless you've had tendonitis in your feet or something and, 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 or, or, you know, you've had surgery and, and all of a sudden it doesn't have to draw attention to itself anymore because, because there's no more, no more inflammation. It just fulfills its purpose. It helps you stand. It helps you walk. It supports the rest of your body. And that's what the ego is supposed to do. It's supposed to help you stand, it's supposed to help you walk, and it's supposed to be there to support the body. This is the beauty of meekness. It's it's the opposite of this needy self-absorption that we find in in Lord Farquaad and King Saul and Scott Saul sometimes. Um, David Brooks from New York Times put it this way. He said, meekness, it's a really great description, and I think this was right on the heels of of Brooks converting to Christianity. He said, meekness is a form of awareness from the context of other-centeredness. It's having an accurate assessment of your own nature. It's having an accurate assessment of your own place in the cosmos. It's an awareness that you are an underdog in the struggle against your own sins. It's It's understanding yourself in the context of a greater divine order knowing you are not the center of the universe and you need redemptive assistance to complete your tasks. It is self-awareness in the context of other-centeredness. It's a beautiful story about the missionary Amy Carmichael um, along these lines. After she died, um, you know, they, were, they were cleaning out her things and um, they came across her her um, photograph collection. If you don't know what a photograph is, it's like a piece of cardboard with with like a selfie on it. Um, But the thing about Amy Carmichael is she didn't have any selfies. The the remarkable thing is, you know, they were going through hundreds of pictures and they couldn't find a single photograph in Amy Carmichael's photo collection where Amy Carmichael was pictured. They were all pictures of the people that she had poured her life into and that she had loved and that she had left a beautiful, full of grace and truth legacy with to carry on after her death. 
Could you imagine what life would be like where we just never felt a need to take any selfies? We never felt any need to create a highlight reel so we can lie to the world about how great our lives are and how successful we are and how great we feel about everything. You know, wouldn't it be just so liberating to blessedly self-forget so that we could go about the purpose for which we were made, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, not in order to get the reward, but because we already have it, and through that to love our neighbor as ourselves, to become not only the best kinds of friends in our cities, but also the best kinds of enemies, because that's part of what Jesus has called us to as well. He's called us to be non-participatory participants in this culture of outrage in which we find ourselves, where everybody's getting pissed off at somebody for something, where we're tribalizing, where we're forming our mobs, where we are forming entire communities around a common enemy. We do it around economics, we do it around race, we do it around gender, we do it around politics, we do it around anything. That is not the kingdom, that's America but it's not of Jesus. You're not a prophet when you participate in the mob culture. You're just a jerk. And Jesus says, I, don't, I can't do anything through a jerk. I can't do anything through a smug, pugnacious, holier-than-thou, trusting in themselves that they are righteous and looking down on others with contempt Pharisees. I can't do anything with that. It's not that I won't. I just can't. Because that spirit is so anti what I am and who I am and who I intend to be in you and through you. And so the counter of that is what, what better season of our history has there been for Christians to be truly countercultural by putting aside anger and malice, and taking up the mantle of blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are you when people say all kinds of false, untrue, slanderous things about you, because they did that to me also. Great is your reward in heaven. Would we dare take the social risk of divorcing ourselves from mob culture and pressing in to the beatitude way. Because it's only the meek who are going to inherit the earth. Only the meek. Making a name for yourself, if that's what, if I'll tell you, confessional, that's what I wanted from church planting. I wanted to be the guy that started from nothing. And because of whom, revival broke out. For his own glory and for his own honor. I was one for whom Jesus was useful, but not beautiful. Oh, how tricky the human heart, oh, how tricky the pastor's heart can be. 
when all the while we think we've been serving Jesus when what we've really been doing is using him. Things like ambition, things like enjoying the sound of our own name more than we enjoy the sound of Jesus' name. Things like not being able to rejoice with churches other than our own that are rejoicing. And not being able to mourn over churches other than our own that are mourning, but rather secretly celebrating that they're declining and that they're shrinking because somehow that puts me just one or two rungs higher in the emotional pecking order of awesomeness. Guess what? Here's how small we are. Here's how small we are. You ever hear that quote from Carl Sagan about the size of the earth? You know, he, he commissions the Voyager satellite to take a picture of planet Earth from, from light years away. And, and it's this little tiny speck. Sagan and, and the scientific community call it the pale blue dot. That's us. Sagan says, a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. You know, and Stephen Hawking said something Similar, we are insignificant people on an insignificant planet in an insignificant solar system in an insignificant galaxy being illuminated by a very weak, mediocre star. And yet, scientists have found no other place in the universe where life exists. And so we must also be pretty special as well. We have to live in that tension of understanding our place, that we are not the creators, we are the created ones. We're not here to be served, we're here to serve because we've already been served and we continue to be served. The lavish grace of Jesus Christ every single day. That's our food, that's our drink, that's our, that's our nourishment, the bread and the cup and everything that it speaks of. The meek will inherit the earth. Lest I'm tempted to make a name for myself, please raise your hand if you have Ever heard of George Salty? Okay, one hand. Congratulations, sir. You get the door prize. Like it or not, you get the free book. Um, George Salty's won more Grammys than anybody in the history of music. 31, to be exact. Who knows who John Tyler is? 10th U.S. president, served two terms. Who knows who Jerry Brown is? Two, three, current governor of California. We have a shelf life. And so the whole large and in charge vision, it really is brought into perspective by this quote um, from Anne Lamott, where you know she's asked, What do you think the world's gonna? going to look like and going to be like in a hundred years. And she says, oh, that's easy. A hundred years, all new people. <sighs> and yet here's, here's the assurance. You know, no, no amount of mega is going to um, cause you to be remembered. Did you know that over a third of the world's population 
has never heard the name Jesus. And so lest we have delusions of grandeur about becoming some great, you know, legacy-creating version of King Saul, it's a goose chase without a goose. Uh, It's tiresome. It will wear us out. It will exhaust us. And it will lead to anticlimactic and sometimes very tragic outcomes. But if we understand that the one who won the universe through the meek act of self-donation, Jesus Christ, will remember us. You know, you remember the psalm? Can a mother possibly forget the child at her breast? Even if she does. I will never forget you. I will always remember you. You know, Robert Dabney said that pride is the vulture, but meekness is the eagle soaring into the upper sky, yet never judging itself to have risen high because its eye is fixed on the distant sun. And yet there's, there's another... There's another son that we've been invited to fix our eyes upon. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. You don't make yourself, you don't make a name for yourself. He's your maker. And he will make something so much better and so much more grand and glorious out of you than you could ever make out of yourself and out of your own life. You know, I was listening to this song um, I'm sorry if few of you even know what the Enneagram is. It's like, it's like the, the newer, sexier version of the Myers-Briggs. Okay, so it's like this personality thing. And there's this guy named Ryan O'Neill, um, leads a band called Sleeping at Last, and he's writing songs about each, what Jesus would say to, to each of the nine numbers on the Enneagram. And to my number, remember, I'm the, I'm the achiever, I'm the one in this room who's most likely to turn out like King Saul or, or, or Lord Farquaad by virtue of my wiring. If I, get, if I go an unhealthy route with, with how I'm wired instead of a healthy one. The song, one, of the things that the song, one of the lyrics in the song is this, that, that with Jesus, rest is just as revered as work. Rest is just as much a sacred, amazing, God-sized thing as planning something from nothing that becomes mega someday. I guess here's the last thing I would say um, for the ambitious part of us and the self-comparing part of us, that Jesus won by losing Um, You know, the Jewish vision for what the Messiah would be was a a strong man, an ubermensch, a a political figure who would come and put other people in their place. But what Spurgeon said about Jesus is more true, about what true kingliness is, what true leadership is. Spurgeon says Jesus is the one who stoops in order to conquer He became small to make us great, you know, born outdoors with animals to two humble teenagers from an unplanned pregnancy. He was rich, but became poor that so through his poverty, we might become rich. He was forgotten so that we would be remembered. He was despised so we would be beloved. 
He was rejected so that we would receive the embrace. He was meek. He came not large and in charge, but, 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 but he came meek. And it was in the very act of not acting like a king that he showed himself to be the king. Psalm 1835, you have given me the shield of your salvation, Lord. This is King David praying, Saul's successor. You've given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your meekness made me great. You are great in his eyes, and you will be remembered for eternity. And you are great in his eyes before you accomplish a single thing and whether you accomplish a single thing. Blessed are the poor in spirit challenges me as one who has the privilege uh, of also in this season of my life pastoring a larger church with resources and influence and whatever. Blessed are the poor in spirit challenges me because there are times when I wonder if the richest, most successful version of Scott Saul's uh, has been in a different season where there were no book deals and where there, there was no recognition and there, was no, there were no invitations to speak at lovely gatherings like this. I was found instead on the floor in my basement that doubled as an office because we didn't have resources, on my face praying, Lord, this is not going to happen unless you make it happen. And I don't think I belong in this kind of ministry. I'm not cut out for this. I don't know how in the world I'm supposed to make a church happen but I do know this, you've said that you love me, you've said that you esteem me, you said, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. And so I'm believing that now, Lord. I, sometimes I wonder if those were my shining and greatest moments in ministry. Because these days I'm tempted to pray less and to plan more. Because it's easy to be on autopilot when your circumstances don't lead you into some form of desperation and humbling. Thankfully, I've got teenage daughters, so I get help in that way. I guess this is what I want to leave you with. I want to leave you with the same words that I started with. The well done has already been pronounced. There's nothing else you can add to that. And you can't subtract from it either. Because the very last words of Jesus' life, it is finished, those are the first words of yours. Thanks for having me.